from the social justice classroom inside Hugh Boyd Secondary, this is Voices. A youth-created podcast driven by a steadfast commitment to improving the world around us. Jalen Wong. And I'm Marcus Navarro, and you're listening to the Voices Podcast. Today we will be tackling the topic of addiction and the contributing factors and barriers along with it. We will be interviewing Dr. Evan Wood, a renowned professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. He is known for his extensive research into addiction and addiction treatment, and is recognized internationally for his work. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today, Dr. Wood. My pleasure. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the work that you do regarding injection drug use and addiction? Yeah, my my work um, to some degree focuses on injection drug use, but it it focuses on all forms of substance use in terms of cannabis all the way through to you know alcohol and and um, things like um, fentanyl or um, cocaine that kind of thing. And I'm my research and my clinical work is focused on trying to. Um, improve treatment outcomes and make society safer in terms of uh, of drug use. Thank you. Uh, what inspired you to pursue this particular field of research? You know, I um, I was involved in the care of people with HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, who had acquired HIV through sharing of dirty needles. Basically, people who were using heroin, who were really sick with addiction, who put themselves in circumstances where they had somebody, you know, inject themselves with half the syringe full of heroin and then and then take sort of second on the needle um, and acquiring HIV that way. And through the work that we did in British Columbia, we had really dramatic improvements in outcomes for people with HIV. But the addiction side of the equation, uh, people often continue to struggle. Um, so that became sort of my clinical and research focus. And I've, I've always felt that um, society's sort of misguided approach towards challenges related to substance use and addiction is um, one of the big sort of social justice challenges um, facing our society. Yeah, that's really interesting. I uh, honestly would have never thought about how it can be trans like transmitted through needles. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and interesting, you're saying that um, in class, we were watching a documentary that followed people experiencing like homelessness on the street, and they work to recover from their addictions. And we noticed that those who were offered a place to live seem to have a better recovery compared to those who did not. Uh, what are your thoughts on how homelessness could impact a person's recovery? Yeah, I mean, that's where sort of social determinants of health can really intersect with uh, risk of addiction. Not to say that anyone from any sort of social strata or housing circumstances or family of origin can't be at risk of addiction, but certainly when people become addicted, it can become a challenge to maintain employment. It can become challenging to maintain, you know, relationships and other things that can result in people becoming um, homeless. And then when people are looking to try and get help, it can be very difficult to then uh, find effective treatment and recovery. Because if you're you know, living in a homeless shelter with a bunch of people who are struggling with active addiction, it becomes very difficult to then pursue, pursue abstinence and, and recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, our audience for this podcast is primarily youth. Do you have any insight in the impacts of addiction on the youth population? Yeah. So, you know, certainly um, 
substance use is a super dangerous time for young people. Um, if you look at sort of mortality uh, and, and risks of mortality, they're generally low. First, when when people are first born in the first year of life, there can be risks and sort of first risks when 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 human beings are first born uh, because of complications that can happen around childbirth. And then the mortality is quite low. And then in sort of the teenage years, mortality goes up. And, and one of the major drivers of that are things like um, drinking and driving or drug impaired driving or violence that can occur or things like overdose, because when people are experimenting with drugs, it can be really dangerous. Um, and then and then mortality after those kind of teenage years goes down. And some people develop patterns of substance use that really predispose to addiction in that time as well. So we know that when young people delay their substance use as long as possible, their risk of addiction goes down. And obviously there's, um, you know, there's, there's risks for young people that can be minimized as well. So um, certainly if you look at all populations, including medical students, including, you know, other professions, when, when people are um, sort of in late high school uh, in university, it's a really dangerous time with substance use. And um, yeah, people really need to be educated about the risks and how to, how, re how to reduce those risks. Uh, do you believe that there is a stigma around the usage of drugs? Um, there's definitely a stigma towards people with addiction. There's like very, very serious uh, stigma. And, and there's been studies that have been done in the U.S. that have shown people images of different things while they're actually in in sort of neuroimaging scanners. So you can look at people's brains and, and these some of these new imaging modalities like MRI, and there's certain parts of our brain that light up if we see something that really disgusts us. And um, you can show people while they're in like MRI scanners, you know, like really sort of honorable people or Olympic athletes and people will part of their brain will light up to show that they're really sort of viewing this with respect. And then you can show people with addiction or using drugs and show like the disgust center really lights up. And that has a lot to do with um, sort of ingrained stigma that society has built up over time through this sort of notion of a war on drugs and, and really stigmatized views around substance use that, um, create a lot of stigma um, towards people. In terms of stigma towards drugs, I think, you know, there there has been historical stigma and, and a lot of that has had, you know, kind of unintended consequences and we haven't really landed in a place that's super evidence-based and informative. You know, you can juxtapose society's sort of sense around alcohol use that isn't particularly stigmatized, even though alcohol can be a, like a really dangerous drug. And then you look at cannabis, which was just sort of legalized and, you know, historical views around cannabis and, and stigma towards that. And that's not to suggest that cannabis can't be quite dangerous. It's just there's the cultural effects of how we viewed these things. You know, it wasn't that long ago that hip hop artists and, you know, counterculture actors were kind of talking about using cannabis or things like that. And that's probably largely because it was illegal. You know, we talk about the forbidden fruit phenomena and when you make things illegal, it may make it more interesting. And um, so there's 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 stigma and there's views around substance use that, you know, you can imagine if in the 1950s when it was contemplated to make uh, cannabis illegal 
if it had just been made legal at that time and it's like, oh, it kind of makes you dumb. It gives you the munchies. Old people use it. You know, you can go down to the corner uh, cannabis shop and get cannabis if you want. But it's kind of like just something that, you know, old people do and it kind of makes them dumb. It would be totally different than making it illegal and something that was like sort of almost glamorous to use. So our 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 societal views around things are really shaped by policies and sometimes they have very unintended consequences. Yeah. So do you think that making other drugs legal in the market, do you think that that would have any impact or make it um, less desirable? You know, it's it's it, I wouldn't say make legal, but I would say regulate. And one of the really dangerous things, and this has had dangerous effects on young people as well, is that by making things illegal, um, we can create an economic opportunity for organized crime. And so if you were to Google sort of youth homicide drug trade, you'll see like news stories about youth. I think in Surrey, this was several years ago that were caught up in some sort of drug trade issues and actually were murdered. That's all because this is illegal. You know, if there's the, if there's a dispute between different actors in the drug business, they can't go to traditional sort of dispute rec resolution mechanisms, right? They can't get a lawyer and write a lawyer's letter and say, hey, you're, you know, infringing on my business or whatever it is. Those types of things, the violence and the organized crime, you know, that's all because of prohibition. And it was the same when alcohol was illegal. There was, you know, Al Capone and all the organized crime that came with that. I'm not suggesting we flip things on their head and suddenly make fentanyl legal and you can go to the fentanyl shop and buy fentanyl. But there are probably mechanisms where people who become seriously addicted to fentanyl, instead of going to a drug dealer to buy fentanyl, could go to a sanctioned place to purchase fentanyl. And I think that that would help wage economic war on organized crime and would um, make things safer for people in terms of uh, not having drug dealers marketing very dangerous drugs to vulnerable populations. Uh, in addition, we were reading your research summary on the UBC MD page, and you were mentioned barriers for addiction treatment, one due, one being due to stigma and the other an ineffective response. What would you be able to elaborate on the ineffective response? Um, yeah, well, the, it's sort of twofold. I work at um, Vancouver Detox, where which is where for all of Vancouver Coastal Health, it's the biggest health authority in British Columbia can go for coming off of drugs, whether it be, you know, alcohol or other drugs. That facility is actually the city's old animal shelter. And you can imagine the quality of that facility. You know, my mother had cancer. And so I know what good care looks like. If you go to the cancer agency, there are these amazing clinics with doctors and nurses and, you know, beautiful buildings and standardized guidelines and treatments. Whereas for people struggling with addiction, they might wait weeks, they might wait weeks to get into a place like Vancouver Detox, realize that it's only for four or five days to get withdrawn off the substance. And if they're homeless, they'll often get um, discharged to homeless shelters. So there's major opportunity cost in the fact that we don't have a functioning addiction treatment system to speak of. And, you know, in terms of, of misguided policies, um, there's a host of things that we do uh, as a sort of the taxpayer funded healthcare system that probably worsen outcomes. So people are trying to get help for their addiction and they're bouncing around in the system, not able to find a skilled addiction medicine physician, and they can end up on medications that actually increase craving and use of substances. 
So there's lots of problematic approaches that are, um, you know, pretty widespread in, in British Columbia and Canada. Yeah, and we were also researching uh, the topic, and we noticed the term evidence-based practice as it relates to drug addiction treatment. Uh, would you be able to explain this concept and what it means to you? Yeah, so you'll be in your sort of science classes and stuff, be you know, looking at some original research papers for different things. And in medicine, there's this concept that's emerged called evidence-based medicine, where we try and move away from sort of opinion or lower levels of evidence, you know, kind of observations in, in studies to where we're looking at actual experiments, like randomized clinical trials, where you would take a population and randomize them to, you know, the placebo condition plus the new treatment to really try and understand how the new treatment works. And evidence-based medicine is essentially trying to sort through different types of evidence, like people's opinions or their personal experience in their clinic, and put that lower down and put the really rigorous forms of evidence like clinical trials at the top of the decision-making structure. And historically, when it's come to care for people with addiction, and arguably for mental health, when it's come to sort of uh, really defining what is best practice and making sure that care providers, whether it be physicians or nurses or others working in the treatment system, adhere to that. And, and that just hasn't been the case for the care of people with addiction historically. And that's, that's slowly starting to change. Okay, thank you. Uh, if there's one thing you would want our listeners to take away from this podcast, what would it be and why? You know, just given the nature of, of the audience, I'll share that when I was in high school, you had, you know, sometimes the, the police officer would come and speak to the class and say, you know, drugs are so dangerous, you know, don't use drugs. And if you use drugs, you could become addicted. And when I was young, I was kind of looking around at people that were using drugs and thinking, you know, that police officer isn't really telling the truth. Um, and to some extent, that may be true, but I will share that all, and I mean all, of my peer group that got into really intense substance use in sort of a grade 11 and 12, um, many of them ended up with severe addiction, and, and some of them ended up, you know, with more consequences of that. That's not to say that everybody that smokes pot in high school is going to have a problem, or people that, you know, go to grad parties and drink will have a problem. I'm not saying that at all. But the sort of the slice of the population that was really uh, using drugs intensely, and those are probably because of underlying genetic issues or environmental issues, you know, were really in, in dangerous circumstances where oftentimes, you know, they didn't end up going to university or they didn't end up getting, you know, the sort of advancement in life that kind of mattered. And it's hard when you're in that high school bubble to think like, this is the most important thing, what's happening to me right now. And not to have that perspective of uh, you've got your entire life in front of you. So I think the, you know, the main thing I would tell young people is just just to be safe and to be smart. And if you choose to use substances, really be very careful and, and um, you know, look to get help when you need it, because um, it's just it's just a it's a natural part of the human condition. Humans have been using drugs since the beginning, whether it's finding plants to smoke or other things. But in our present world, with the pills and the powders and things like fentanyl, 
you know, a bad decision could take your life. And um, some of these substances like crystal methamphetamine and other things are more addictive than anything that, you know, we were ever evolved around the plants that are around us and things like that. There's nothing like crystal methamphetamine or fentanyl. So it's a dangerous time to be a human being. Yeah. And um, before I know you mentioned something about uh, genetic issues, uh, was it uh, kind of referring to like the genetic the genetic makeup would have some kind of make people more vulnerable to taking drugs? Yeah. So, so we know about 50% of the burden of disease from addiction is probably genetic and about 50% is environmental. So that doesn't mean that, um, that uh, anyone who's got a, you know, a brother or a sister or a mother or a father who's addicted will become addicted. um, But it certainly increases uh, risk. And there's all sorts of genes that are involved in different forms of substance use. So sometimes people will have a drag off of a cigarette or a vape pen, and it'll be really rewarding because of the nicotine. And for other people, it'll make them totally nauseous and they'll want to throw up and they'll be like, never again. And that's probably because of genetic influences. And that's just nicotine related genes. There's genes that affect addiction to opioids, genes that affect addiction to alcohol. Um, And there's interesting reasons for that. Those, those genes that actually help with human connection um, are probably implicated as uh, predisposing to addiction. So there's some interesting reasons why over time evolution has put these genes in humans that um, predispose to addiction that actually, um, you know, served a, served a reason through our evolution. And that's why they were selected for, whereas now in sort of modern environments where there's things that are highly addictive or dangerous around, they can predispose to, um, to serious harms in, in the form of addiction. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was really interesting. Um, yeah, that was all our questions. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today and answering our questions. Yeah, you're in My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for what you're doing to uh, advance some of these important conversations. 